0: It's Aspen Ideas to Go from the Aspen Institute. I'm Trisha Johnson. The negative impacts of climate change are accelerating. We're seeing longer droughts, higher temperatures, and deadly wildfires and floods. There's also the threat of sea level rise. Despite all of this, former UN climate chief Cristiana Figueres made a choice that has affected her life's work.
1: I many years ago decided, decided because it is a decision, that I was going to be optimistic about being able to address climate change. Not because the aspiration is that we're going to solve climate change because we're not going to solve it.
0: Since we won't solve it, she explains how we can best prepare for a future that will look different than today. Aspen Ideas To Go brings you compelling talks from on-stage events hosted by the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership in the exchange of ideas. Today's discussion was held in Aspen, Colorado at the Aspen Ideas Festival. If this July is any indication, it's clear that our climate is changing. Stifling hot temperatures were felt across the world. CNN reports Japan and the Korean Peninsula experienced record heat. Brutal, above-average temperatures were felt in Europe. And most of North America was sweltering. If the world continues to warm, say climate experts, we can expect similar conditions in the future. That's why Christiana Figueres says we need to take action now. Our world cannot afford to heat up more than two degrees. Figueres is the convener of Mission 2020, a global effort to peak greenhouse emissions by the year 2020. She also served as executive secretary of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. She oversaw the delivery of the Paris Climate Agreement. She talks with Jeff Goodell, a journalist and author of The Water Will Come, Rising Seas, Sinking Cities, and the Remaking of the Civilized World. Their conversation was held June 25th. Here's Goodell.
2: Just prior to the Paris, uh, in the run-up to the Paris Climate Agreement, The New Yorker ran a profile of you. Uh, uh, Betsy Colbert, really great journalist, did a, a story about you which was very entertaining. But the, the, the wonderful thing that I loved was the sub-headline of the story, which was, Can Christina, Chris, Christiana Figueres Persuade Humanity to Save Itself? So I would like to ask how you feel like you've been doing on that score. Have you persuaded humanity to save itself?
1: Well, what do you think? <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, good morning, everybody. Delighted to, uh, to be here. I actually thought, Jeff, that you were going to uh, pick up another very fun term or sentence that Betsy has in that article, which is um, that the position that I was in uh, gave me full responsibility for persuading the world and no authority. Um, And that's a really fun situation to be in, right? (laughs) Uh, Which is a little bit the way I would like to answer your question because the fact is uh, that there is no meta authority in the world uh, that would persuade everyone of anything that just doesn't exist. And so the challenge on climate change, unfortunately one that we realized in time, in a timely fashion, was that this was not going to be the result of any top-down effort, but rather turning everything around that we had been doing on climate for decades and doing what we would call the bottom-up. So uh, very much of a very, very detailed, bespoke effort of having uh, profound conversations with every government to understand where they were coming from. Where were they feeling the pinch uh, and also where did they see that they could benefit by decarbonizing their own economy? And every country and every government is unique. Everybody has a very different natural resource system under them. Everybody has, is at a different point in their economic development. Everybody has different social and political moments and pressures. Um, But everybody came to the conclusion that it was in their own interest to begin to decarbonize their own economy and, by the way, also thereby help the global decarbonization. But the Paris Agreement is very much structured on enlightened self-interest. Right. So we didn't pursue, you know, we didn't pursue um, the argument that we have to save the planet. We certainly didn't convince anyone that we have to save the planet. But we did convince everyone that it is in their best interest to begin to do the right thing.
2: Right. And uh, one of the things that people talked about with the Paris Climate Agreement was that, you know, critics would talk about it not having uh, enforceable by law and things like that. And I want to go into the details of Paris in a moment, but let's stick with the big picture for a second. I mean you and i have both been watching this movement towards decarbonization the movement to gain awareness of climate change you know yesterday saturday was the 30th anniversary of uh, james hansen's uh, congressional testimony where he first james hansen the scientist nasa scientist who first called the world's attention to the risks of climate change in his congressional testimony so
1: first U.S. scientists U.S. because scientist. there were other scientists who did it before
2: okay well it's for better or worse seen as a benchmark, of, absolutely uh, a benchmark of, uh, yes. right so I mean how do you, I want to ask you how you think we're doing I mean I think that you and I have I think perhaps a little bit different um perspectives on this I mean I look at this and I'm it's hard for me not to be pretty pessimistic when you see you know what's happening with um Emissions are, you know, you can we can parse this different ways, but the the by the the most important metric, which is the parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere, the curve is going like this. There is no, you know, you know, downslope. It is just a curve going up. We're seeing, you know, increasing impacts of uh, climate change. The sensitivity of the climate we're seeing is perhaps greater than we understood 30 years ago. We're seeing you know, extreme weather, we're seeing, you know, I wrote a book about sea level rise, we're seeing, you know, increasing risks in places like Antarctica, which we didn't know about before. I mean, I, I guess I want you to make the case, I think that I, my guess from what I know about you is you're pretty, you have a opti- more optimistic spin than I do on this. So tell me your kind of reasons for optimism about where well, we are today, a, after 30 years of this.
1: It's not a spin, it's a decision. Um, and I think that is a decision that everybody needs to make. So, But before I get to this decision, you're absolutely right in being concerned because the fact is that the negative impacts of climate change are only accelerating, right? And they're accelerating because they're all interconnected. And when the ice underneath Antarctica begins to melt, which we didn't know before would happen, then that has huge ramifications all across the world. Um, and and you uh, and 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 when you have more um, more droughts on one side and and more floods on the other, you're playing with what used to be a very stable hydrological system around the world. And once those pieces of the puzzle begin to move, then the entire puzzle moves. So so you're absolutely right about being concerned because the fact is that we're now seeing that uh, many of the negative impacts are actually beginning to spiral up exponentially. So completely correct on that. Having said that, I many years ago decided, decided because it is a decision, that I was going to be optimistic about being able to address climate change not because the aspiration is that we're going to solve climate change, because we're not going to solve it. The Paris Agreement, even in its best, wildest imagination, implementation does not solve climate change. We're actually already, because of the concentrations that are up there, we're already baked into a world that over the next 20, 30, 40, 100 years, is going to be radically different to the world that we had before. So all we're trying to do at this point, honestly, is to um, control for the extremist, not even for the extreme, for the uh impacts, right? We're trying to control for the uh sea level rise. We're trying to control for the extremist desertification in Africa, for example. We're trying to control so that we don't get to a runaway situation that would be completely unmanageable. We're trying to keep the damage that we're doing within manageable scale. Manageable scale means we would be able to adapt. We, the humans, and flora and fauna around us would be able to adapt. With difficulty, but we would be able to adapt. If we go above two degrees, we cannot adapt. The physical impact is so huge that we would not be able to solve millions of lives and the economy would not be able to adapt. That is really very concerning. The, um, the insurance industry has already said that if we go above two degrees, we get into a world that is systemically uninsurable, right? So, so there's no doubt that we are really playing with, um, with fire, so to speak, with a very, very dangerous situation. All of that I am fully aware. I do not deny it, and end. I ask you, do you know of any challenge that mankind has had in the history of humankind that was actually successful in its achievement that started out with pessimism, that started out with defeatism? There isn't. There is not. So it is a choice. If we today decide, okay, you know what? It's too complicated. It's too late. We need to do too much. Well, guess what? We're not going to do it, and then we move into a situation that is completely unmanageable. If we, however, decide, actually, we don't have a choice. It is our moral, economic, political, and technical responsibility to address climate change in a timely fashion. Because addressing climate change in an untimely fashion is not addressing it. So addressing climate change in a timely fashion, it is our responsibility because we're all alive right now, we are holding the power of decision, we have the capital, we have the technology, we have the, the, the wherewithal, we have to do this. So my optimism is not a you know, la la land, it's not that I'm in Alice in Wonderland, okay? <laughs> it's that I have decided that we are going to go at this with a positive outlook and put forward the future that we want to create. The future that I want to give to my children and to your children. I do not want to give your children a future that they can't manage. I want to give your children a future that they can manage. It's not a safe future, but it's a future that they can manage. And in as much as we create that vision and that future, then we begin to unleash enormous amount of human potential and human dedication and determination to make that future a reality that is why i'm optimistic not because i'm in la la land
2: <laughs> no no i would not suggest you were in la la land <laughs> for sure but i think the devil's in the details or or um, something like that because i think i mean i don't think even even a pessimist like myself uh, would ever advocate giving up. That's not why I spend my life writing about this. I think the issue is what do we do and how do we deal with this situation? And, and, and one of the, you know, big discussions uh, that's going on in climate right now is this question of um, mitigation versus adaptation, right? So I think that up until very recently, the conversation in climate has been all around we have to cut emissions as fast as possible so we don't get to the two degree mark. That's the threshold, that's what science has told us. I think, I know you might disagree, but I think broadly a lot of scientists now believe that we're going to blow through that two degree mark um, and that we are moving into this world of of, uh, more extreme changes. Um, And I think the question now is, you know, have we focused do we need to focus more on preparing for life in this new world that's coming to us? And has the single-minded focus on mitigation, which more or less hasn't worked in the sense that we're not on path that we had hoped to be on certainly thirty years ago? Um, and there's the people who have advocated a sort of mitigation only point of view have always said, Oh, adaptation will take away from, if, if we think that we can just adapt to this new world, then nobody will try very hard to cut emissions. Have we, have, do, is it time for us to change our focus a little bit to think about how do we build a new world for these um, changes?
1: I would say that that diagnostic that you made is make is a correct one 10 years ago. Um, I think that the international community was very, very focused on mitigation. Uh, and not an adaptation, because we didn't understand it. And because it was, it's, it's so localized and so specific, it's difficult to get a sense of adaptation at the global level. But as of 10 years ago, I think that tide has changed. Not quickly enough, but the tide has changed. Um, now, what we have come to understand is that it's not mitigation versus adaptation. It is both at the same time and with equal focus. Because the fact is, if we do not mitigate, i.e., if we do not bring emissions down at an accelerated pace, there is no, no level of adaptation that we will ever be able to do to address our life on this planet. So these two things are intimately linked. And frankly, we can, Walk and chew gum at the same time. Okay? It's not like we humans can only think of one thing at a time. I'm you know, I'm challenging all of you, and I know every single one of you is thinking perhaps about what we're talking about, but also about three other things at the same time. Because we can do that. We can be we are able to do that, and we have to be able to not just think about both, but actually act on both, and we are. Uh, Now, the difference is that mitigation is much easier to measure because it's measured in tons, so you can measure it. And um, the, the different investments from just from a financial point of view, the investments into the technologies of solutions, into renewable energies, electric vehicles, energy efficiency, land restoration, conservation, et cetera, et cetera, all of those investments that actually bring emissions down are much easier to understand and to measure than adaptation. Adaptation is much more difficult because it's very site-specific. And and, and furthermore, it's very difficult to know in advance to predict what adaptation needs to occur in what town or village or country or city uh, because you don't exactly know what is going to happen. So adaptation is unfortunately enshrouded in even more uncertainty than mitigation is, which doesn't mean that we do not pay attention to it. In fact, most countries in the world, by far the numerical majority of countries in the world, I would say over 100 countries, have very little mitigation capacities at all because they're not emitting. The only way that you can reduce a ton of greenhouse gases is if you emit it. If you do not emit a ton, there's no way that you can reduce it, right? And there are at least 100, if not more, countries in the world that have no sizable emissions. So they really can't do a significant impact in reducing their emissions because they just don't have that. They are reducing their emissions anyway, not because they're gonna make a huge impact on the global uh, number, but just because it is in their own national interest to become more energy independent. But those are the countries that are most vulnerable and that need the most adaptation support. Because right. here I'm talking about, and thank you very much for your film last night, here I'm talking about the Pacific Islands, for example, more than 40 very, very low-lying states that are only you know, a very short distance above sea level and that, as you well know better than anybody else, uh, are losing their land. Right. I'm also talking about one third of the land of Bangladesh. I'm talking about you know, seventy percent of the cities of the world that are all on coastlines. That is absolutely urgent for adaptation.
2: Right. I mean, one of the other big differences between mitigation and adaptation is that it's easier to see a path to making money with energy technology and things like that investment driving investment towards that it's much more difficult to think about that with adaptation it's like not like you know building seawalls is something that Elon Musk is going to put a lot of you know, exactly. Uh, in, term,
1: yeah. in terms of moving the economy, right, um, the investment opportunities are by far in the mitigation side. Right. In some of the mitigation side, actually, we're still struggling to figure out what is the business case for investing into all land use issues, right, into reforestation, degradation, et cetera, et cetera. So that piece still remains to be figured out what is the business case. But the business case for investing into renewables has been made recently over the past seven years. That was not so ten years ago. right Not so. Um, so there is, you know, a sense in which we're getting slowly, very slowly, to the point where we are able to figure out the business case. And frankly, that's how we're going to solve this, right? We're not going to solve this through charity.
0: Thanks for listening to Aspen Ideas to Go. Former U.S. Energy Secretary Ernest Moniz says when America pulled out of the Paris Agreement, it was bad for energy security and innovation. But others have stepped
2: up, he says. Mayors, governors, businesses, universities, uh, all kinds of civil society organizations uh, have, uh, shall we say, risen up uh, following the announcement uh, to make clear that they are going to stay on track.
0: Moniz, who now teaches at MIT, is featured in Aspen Ideas To Go. Look for the episode, The Road from Paris, in our show notes. You can also find it in our lineup on your favorite podcast player. Now, back to today's conversation. Here's Jeff Goodell.
2: Um, but we have to talk about Paris. Um, uh, that was such an important achievement. I was there. I was very moved by it. I, uh, it was... Um, uh, very powerful moment, both with because partly because of the terrorist attacks that had happened there, and there was just a, it was a very very powerful. I, I, I've been covering this and thinking about this for a long time, and it was probably one of the most sort of hopeful moments. So
1: sorry, you a pessimist are saying that that actually gave you hope. I'm just checking. It did.
2: Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a sort of unsullied <laughs> pessimist. I have. I, I, I Fantastic. Yeah. No, I just, You're
1: coming over to our yeah, side.
2: <laughs> yeah, slowly but surely. Okay. Right? Good. Um, uh, but so, so, but there's a lot of questions now about, you know, the U.S. has pulled out and of all that. And, but I, I guess I want to ask you, what are the, what is the lesson that you've learned from what's happened at Paris? Where, from where we were that moment, you put it all, you know, you were in, in integral in putting it all together. And now here we are you know, almost three years later, US is out of it. Countries are not doing as much as they should be doing. I know there's some are doing better than others, but it's, it's sort of limp now. And it's like, it's not clear where it's going. I mean, how, how do you parse this, um, this moment now? And what are, what, what are the lessons that you learned from this
1: So I would not, obviously being the decided optimist that I am, I wouldn't call it limp. I would say that with the exception of the U.S. federal government, and I differentiate the U.S. federal government from uh, states and cities and corporations and investors in the United States that continue to decarbonize because it's in their interest, not because they're doing anything out of charity. Um, So, in the United States, I think it's very important to differentiate between what I call the real economy moving forward and federal politics. Completely different scenarios. In the rest of the world, the fact is that there is a heck of a lot going on and that most of the large countries are already ahead of schedule to what they said that they could do in Paris, which is not surprising because Paris was 2015, but we asked them a whole year before, 2014, go home, do your homework, figure out what you can do to contribute to this issue. And so what they registered under Paris is the visibility that they had in 2014, <laughs> and that's what they registered, right? So, you know, when when China put in how much they were gonna do on solar, or when India put in how much they were gonna do on solar, well, they were projecting with respect to the solar prices in 2014. And they were projecting with, 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 um, in relation to their investment capacity at that time. The fact is that China has already today, in 2018, surpassed what it said it would do under the Paris Agreement. They, took on a certain number of gigawatts installed in renewable energy by 2020, and they've already surpassed that today, in 2018. So they are two years ahead of schedule and increasing exponentially. Not because they want to save the planet, again, right? They're doing it because it's in their fundamental interest. Why? A, because it creates jobs, they are investing 300 billion into renewable energy extra now between now and 2020, thereby creating 13 million jobs, high quality jobs, which they really want. Uh, They are already number one, create a manufacturer of solar panels, but they don't wanna be just their manufacturing solar panels for their own um, domestic um, consumption. They actually want to be the number one solar panel manufacturer for the world, so they are continuing to to invest in that. Um, And and finally, they absolutely know that we're moving into a carbon-constrained economy, into a low-carbon economy, where the demand for renewable technologies is only going to grow. And they want to be there, particularly now in the absence of other competition, enough said, um, they definitely want to be there to take advantage of this fantastic market, right? So that's China. (laughs) India, and sorry, in addition to that, they're of course also paying attention to, uh, even in China, people actually do complain about the quality of air, and uh, so they're closing coal plants because of the quality of air. So very interesting that even in China there is public pressure. Uh, to, uh, to close coal pans. India, not quite as aggressively as China because they don't have the deep pockets that China does, but also completely ahead of schedule. What they said that they were going to be able to do on renewable energy because today, solar is so much cheaper than coal. In fact, even amortized coal in India. Um, it's the cheapest, it's the cheapest uh, energy around. Uh, So, they've already been able to say, well, actually what we said uh, under uh, under the Paris Agreement, our target for 2030, they have a target for 2030, we can actually reach that target by 2027, and not only are we going to reach that target by 2027, we're actually going to be 50% above that target by 2027. So three years ahead of time, 50, uh, 50% more. Um, and the revolution continues. India has already said that every single vehicle that is sold into the Indian market as of 2030 is going to be electric. As of 2030. Every single vehicle. So, you can understand you know, that uh, of course here in the United States you get the impression that it's limp and that nobody's doing anything, but the fact is this is actually the most exciting energy revolution that we have ever seen and that those who understand that there is a commercial, financial, health and economic strength and job creation opportunity are actually doing the right thing.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, where we're my, you know, to go back to my uh, uh, pessimism, uh, gentle pessimism, but pessimism yeah. nevertheless. Uh, it's now
1: become gentle. We're yeah. getting there. You're,
2: you're convincing me here <laughs> on the stage. I'm like, oh, maybe you're right. Um, <laughs> You know, uh, the, the problem is, of course, is that we're in a race against time. I mean, everyone knows that, we're, that you know, fossil fuels are on their way out, and it's a question of when, and that we'll figure, we're figuring out better ways to make energy, and we will, and innovation will drive all that. The problem is that we're in a race against. Absolutely. And that, you know, so I, I just, you know, you're talking about the US, but so three weeks ago, I was in Australia, and I went, uh, I took my 15-year-old daughter to the Great Barrier Reef. Um,
1: 30% it, gone.
2: More than 30 I would I would say but but I found a nice part of it that is not gone because I really wanted my 15 year old daughter to see it uh, and to understand what how beautiful this thing is because it is not long for this world sadly. Um, and as we were coming back in from the Barrier Reef we came into, to we went out of Gladstone and it's a big kind of giant coal transport spot and my daughter was like, "What are those ships?" And I was like, well, Grace, those are coal ships, you know, and, and you go to Australia and they're on the verge of opening the largest coal mine in, in the world, the Adonis coal mine. And, and Can
1: I bring you up to date with the Adani coal mine?
2: Well, I, I know it's, it's, it's you, people will say that it's not going to happen, but it's very close. And even the fact that it's being talked about, right, is...
1: Right. The, so, so Australia is definitely one of the biggest coal exporters of the world, right. uh, has been so for many years. Um, and uh, how long they will be able to do that remains to be seen because the fact is that uh, coal, not only in Australia but worldwide, is beginning to see not only the loss of social license because no one wants a coal plant in their backyard anymore because of health conditions, but they're also beginning to lose their financial license because most uh, financial institutions are now already saying we are no longer going to finance new coal. So one issue is coal that already exists and another thing that is I think more concerning to me is all the coal plants that are in countries books to be built that's the problem, it's not even the existing coal, it's the expansion of coal, right? But you already have most financial institutions, the World Bank, all of the development banks, and a host of uh, commercial banks that are already filing, uh, falling behind them to say, we're no longer gonna finance any coal, uh, any coal expansion uh, anymore. Secondly, you now have um, insurance companies that have understood that these are very risky assets, that because of a decarbonized economy, these uh, assets are just going to lose value or are already losing value, and so insurance companies are no longer insuring coal. So now you have them losing finance, you have them losing insurance in some jurisdictions. Australia is a continent on its own, uh, with, certainly with respect to coal. Uh, and you know, the 10-year war on climate change in Australia has meant that we have had four, five uh, governments up and down, up and down in Australia around a 10-year uh, a 10-year war on coal on on climate change because they have had no stability in their policy on on climate change. And coal is a big, big part of that. The Adani coal mine, for me, is truly the canary. Okay, it is really the canary in the mine. So the Adani coal mine uh, would have been, because I'm now putting it into the past. Okay, um, the, coal mine, uh, been, uh, the coal mine would have been
3: the uh, coal mine would have been
1: certainly the largest coal mine in Australia and the second largest coal mine in the world. Uh, they uh, and it was set to open up in a very fragile ecosystem. Then they were going to have a rail track that took the coal from where it was to the coal port, and from there exported to India. And uh, to power
2: Bangladesh, which is uh, talk about cognitive dissonance. I mean, anyway. Yeah.
1: And the the coal company requested. Uh, basically a grant from the Australian government to fund that track uh, because otherwise without that track not coming coming on their books they would not have been able to uh, to make it a viable investment so the um, it, it was a pretty difficult decision for the Australian government whether they were actually going to put that billion in or not and they finally decided we're not putting in the billion so the track is now no longer financed now with the with the track no longer being financed, uh, it's gonna be very difficult for them to make ends meet because they still have to open up the coal mine, figure out how to finance this piece, put it over here into the port. The port is already into a very, very financial uh, d- difficult decision uh, because decision point because it needs to be refinanced at the end of this year. And the only banks that would have considered refinancing that port uh, were counting on The guarantee that this coal is actually going to go to port to make this port financially viable, and furthermore, so this port is now not going to get the refinancing that it needs, and then all of that is going to go to a coal mine that is also having a coal plant in India that is also having huge problems because it used to import coal uh, at a certain uh, at a certain level and of price, and that is no longer available to them. So that's why they wanted this cheap coal. Well, in the absence of this cheap coal, that plant is not going to function. So, you see that there is a domino effect, a financial domino effect, that has actually killed that project. So, there would actually have to be too many things that would have to happen. Um, somehow, somebody would have to finance that, that track, somebody would have to refinance the port. In my book, it ain't gonna happen.
0: Flip in your earbuds and find great listening almost anywhere. Aspen Ideas To Go is on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, NPR One, or your favorite podcast player. We're also on SiriusXM's Insight Channel. That's channel 121. Download any of our shows for free and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. If you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a rating. It helps others find the show. Here's the rest of today's discussion. Jeff Goodell
2: So about the financial part of it, I mean, I think that uh, Mark Carney at the Bank of England has done a really great job of pointing out the carbon bubble, the asset risk, as we get more and more acceleration of clean energy and how these assets, what is it? I think he has uh, citing $2 trillion of carbon assets at risk, Um, and I think that's a very powerful um, kind of financial uh, argument in this case. we only have a few minutes before I open to questions. I want to. Ask, I mean, I, I would. I would. I don't want to ask you about Trump because that's sort of shooting fish in a barrel um, in, in this context. I think, um, but I, but I do. I do want to ask you. You know, cause since the Paris Agreement was so important and U.S. the U.S. role is so important in this, I'm interested in a scorecard from you on President Obama, on on, on when you look back at his eight years of of leadership and what he achieved and what he didn't achieve. How do you parse his record on climate?
1: I think President Obama, um, let me put it this way. I'm very grateful that he had two terms. Because in the first term, uh, he spent his entire political capital on health issues, right? Uh, and, And he just had absolutely no political capital left to do something that he personally feels very intensely about. But he just had no political capital. So it wasn't until he was in his second term that he was actually able to pick up that torch uh, and begin to move in, in particular, on regulations via EPA, on on vehicle standards, on regulations uh, on uh, on, uh, energy uh, producing plants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and, And those of us who were in the negotiations we really noticed the difference, okay? It wasn't just domestic policy and domestic regulation that truly went up three notches in the second, in the second term. It was absolutely the, the political negotiating strategy of the United States that really went up four notches. And um, had President Obama not had a second term, I don't think he would have had the political muscle to walk himself Uh, plus his entire team over to China and build a very important collaborative bridge with China, right? right? In that second term, he was able to literally walk himself over to China and say, okay, this is a joint problem. This is a problem that we both are responsible for. The United States way more responsible than China in the past but China way more responsible than the United States in the future, and hence in the present, we need to meet and act collaboratively. So the fact that in the run up to Paris in the last two years, there were three agreements between the United States and China at three different points in time with with increasing depth of collaboration, was absolutely the backbone for the Paris Agreement. And without the two biggies at the table saying, yes, we do want to collaborate, and yes, we do understand that there is a shared responsibility here, it would have been very difficult, Mm
2: -hmm. if not impossible. Mm -hmm. So I would like to now invite anyone who has questions. Thank you all.
1: Uh, Catherine Wilkinson with
0: Project Drawdown. I wanted to ask a question about language. We use this term decarbonizing the economy a lot. When I think what we mean is decarbonize particular sectors, and actually, arguably, we want to recarbonize ecosystems, agricultural soils, land. Um, wondering about your thoughts about um, kind of that particular terminology, um, and also areas where we ought to be more thoughtful about the language we're using.
1: You are 150% right. 150% right, and, and thank you very much for calling on me because I, I have been struggling for what is, what is the better word. Um, but, but you know it's actually pretty simple to think about carbon because carbon truly is the issue here. Now, those of us who work on climate change fall into this stupid default of thinking carbon is the enemy. Carbon is not the enemy. It's the location of the carbon that is the enemy, right? So this is basically like a real estate industry. It's location, location, location. (laughs) As simple as that. It is. So, carbon in the atmosphere, otherwise known as carbon dioxide, in the atmosphere is no doubt the enemy of global stability. No doubt about that. Carbon in the soil is no doubt our best friend. And so it's all about, you know, if you think about it in a simplistic way, it's all about how do you do a huge conveyor belt that takes all of this stuff that we're putting out there and puts it all the way back in the soil? Because by the time you put carbon back in the soil, which is where it should be, then you have so much more productive soils that have the um, the food uh, production capacity, et cetera, et cetera, and and and. and you cut down on forced migration, right? Because if these people who are forced to migrate because they don't have water, food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, because they are under desertification, uh, if they can stay at home, they would stay at home. And so you solve many problems by actually putting carbon back in the soil. So yes, totally agree with you. Um, it is about, I guess, taking carbon out of the energy system is the, um, is the correct wording on that, so thank you for pointing that out. Location, 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 remember that.
3: There are those in this country who negate climate change. Could you tell us what the scientific data is that says that we do have climate change? And then may I ask Lonnie Thompson at Ohio State University, does the core ice from the Antarctic, uh, we have that Stored at the university and he looks at that and he talks about that Could you help us with this? Yeah,
1: so I mean so so there's just you know abundant abundant scientific evidence whether it comes from ice cores uh, That show the difference in co2 levels in the air uh, today versus Thousands of years ago, or even 140,000 years ago. So, ice core, and and, you know, you you don't, how do you quibble with a a fact uh, like an ice core. You also have obviously atmospheric measurements, not as far reaching in time as ice cores, those are the most far reaching, but you have atmospheric uh, measurements that come uh, uh, from at least in, let's say, in in recent history. Um, And you do have very, very clear relationship that you can see between the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere and the global average surface temperature. So as one, and it doesn't go like this, it sort of goes like that, but the trend is definitely up on CO2 um, and the temperature as well. Uh, And so, you know, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, climate, the fact that we have climate change is a fact. It's not a belief system. It's not a religion. It's not ideology. It is as scientifically correct and true as gravity is, uh, as the fact that we live on a planet that is shaped as a globe. Um, so, you know, if, if there are people who still want to insist that we have a flat planet, well, you know. Fine. How does that change our reality? Doesn't. If people want to insist that they don't believe in gravity, fine. Gravitational pull still exists on them. Um, I don't even worry about people who deny science. I don't. I don't. I also don't call it that they don't believe in climate chi- climate change because then it gives them the power of believing or not. This is not about believing. Either you understand the science or you don't. And most people decide to come back to my very first point this morning. Decide that they don't want to understand climate science, okay? That's a decision because it's a little bit too inconvenient to admit that you understand what is going on. So it is about the inconvenience because the moment you understand what is going on, there is a little responsibility about doing something about it, right? So it's much easier to decide, I don't want you know, I don't believe in science.
2: Yeah, here. Uh, You earlier talked about how you decided to be an optimist. I'm curious uh, in the process of uh, Helping others make that decision bringing them along what have been your key challenge or challenges and strategies to Help them make that decision in service of action.
1: Yeah, honestly, um, if you see where we were in 2010 after does anybody here remember the Copenhagen climate, okay, so, so I call that the most successful failure of the United Nations. Um, and I call it a successful failure, failure because we didn't get to where we wanted to, successful because we learned a heck of a lot from it. And, um, but right after that that summit, 2000, at the end of 2009, I think the global mood on climate change was really negative, right? Most people were in the pessimist box. Uh, not even the, what did you call yourself, the light pessimist, or what yeah. did
2: you call Gentle, yeah.
1: Not even the gentle pessimists. Most people, in fact, even myself, were in the you know really deeply um, uh, upset pessimist box about it's we, we're just not going to do this, right? Uh, this is going to be a failure of humankind. And it was at that point that I decided, you know, that that was not a scenario that I could take for my daughters. It it just doesn't. It just doesn't belong into the terms of reference of a mother or a parent that we turn over a planet that is substantially worse than the planet that we received from our parents. It, just, it, it, it is in no terms of reference of any parent. So, um, so I think that there were six years of injecting optimism into the entire system, which had a lot to do with realism recognizing the difficulties that we were having. You cannot responsibly be an optimist if you're in denial of the complexities that you face. I mean, that is irresponsible, right? But that's why I call myself a stubborn optimist, okay? Because I recognize the challenges that we have. I am very, very aware, not just of the global challenges, I'm very aware of the challenges of every single country because that was my job. Um, But I'm stubborn because I know that despite all of that, We have to find a way forward, and the future has to be different than the projections that science is giving us today. Currently, science is projecting that we will go into a world that is above three degrees. Well, do I remind you that the industry has already told us that's systemically uninsurable. So we cannot allow ourselves to follow the projections of science. The projections of science are to the year 2011, um, 2100. We now have today the present to change that trajectory. And it's about deciding to do so. It's about understanding that we have everything that it takes and it is about working in a collaborative form with each other, understanding each other's needs and truly coming to a common ground that is our common planet and our common home. And we all have something to gain on that. So it really is about changing the chip from my tiny, weensy little piece, you know, I want whatever, I want my SUV or whatever, to understanding, okay, what are the implications of all of this and how are we all better served in the long term?
2: So uh, I just want to clarify my, uh, I'm feeling a little sensitive about my pessimism, Um, and I just want to clarify that I'm pessimistic that we can, you know, meet the two degree goal and keep things the same. I'm actually quite optimistic that we can adapt to this new world, that we can do things better. If we go beyond
1: two? Yeah,
2: I I think that even with You know, lots of sea level rise. We can think about different ways of building cities with water, and there's a lot going to be unleashing a lot of creativity and uh, new thinking about how we live in in this rapidly changing world. Of course, a lot of people will suffer and there will be a lot of loss, but there will also be a kind of like inspiring creativity, which is something that I've learned from thinking about this and writing this book about sea level rise is how People are rethinking our relationships with the coast. and uh, So that I, have, I have a hidden strain of optimism. I just want to clarify that. OK.
1: I'm, I'm very glad for that clarification. But here's my concern with that. I think you're absolutely right that we would be able to redesign our future and the way that we live on this planet if we get above two degrees for the top X percent of population from a financial point of view. But yeah. 70% of, this pop- of the population in this world will not benefit from that. Right. And hence, I think that is immoral and unacceptable. Unacceptable. I cannot stand here and say, right, oh, it doesn't really matter, you know, the, the population of Kiribati or Vanuatu or Tuvalu or Samoa or Papua New Guinea, Goodbye. Nice to have had you. Really exotic cultures. Goodbye. I can't do that. I just cannot do that. And so I am here because I stand for them. I don't stand for the top 1% of the population that has all the money in the world and that will construct, you know, fantastic architectural... Wonderful. Have a nice life. That's not who I'm fighting for. I am fighting for those who do not have a voice I am fighting for those who have no responsibility past present or future for climate change none right. none right and yet they are the victims of it those are the ones that I fight for
2: Although, <laughs> I, I, I would argue that the you know uh, having spent time in Marshall Islands lots of places the you know the resiliency of some of these people in these places are amazing. And then you, the resiliency of a one percenter when he has or she has a flat tire on the road you know, is much lower. <laughs> a, oh, I a agree, wonder- but, but
1: the resiliency of the wonderful people in the Marshall Islands, that elastic resiliency can only be stretched to a certain point. And when they lose their land, you cannot stretch it anymore.
2: Right, of course. Another one more question.
3: Um, I wanted to come back to your point about the financial Uh, decisions being made and the task force for climate related financial disclosures and um, underscore the importance of Paris and the, the two degree scenario that all of the corporate and financial world are pegging our scenarios to to understand the climate risks in all of our portfolios and to make the connection that there may be some additional things that we can do now that we've created the norm for assessing climate risks in these financial portfolios like commercial real estate or mortgage portfolios or um, public finance portfolios, that in your work with governments that there is a link between what the financial industries of those countries are doing and to the NDCs of those countries. Yes. And so I um, just want to make the link and to show that the Paris, the Paris two degrees is the hook on which all of these new practices and new standards, which is the the way that we make that change is coming to happen in a pretty uh, rapid pace which is, which is really gratifying to see. And so I wanted to make that connection and maybe we could talk about it later, but just to say Paris is everything for our ability to Understand what's in our portfolios against uh, climate change in all of these different scenarios. So, yeah. thank
1: you. No, I, t- I totally agree with you. And, and honestly, at this point, um, if you really push me to say, right, choose one sector that has the capacity right now, that is, has the privileged capacity or the privileged position to decide whether we're going to be successful or not on Paris, the financial sector. No doubt no doubt so you know to those of you who have understood this and who have taken leadership there, um, thank you very much and you better hurry up and do more.
2: Join me in thanking Christiana for all her work and her optimism.
0: Christiana Figueres is Vice Chair of the Global Covenant of Mayors for Climate and Energy. When she worked for the UN she was integral in putting together the Paris Climate Accord. Jeff Goodell is a contributing editor at Rolling Stone. He's a commentator on energy and climate issues on several TV and radio shows. Their conversation was held June 25th at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Today's show was produced by Marcy Krivenen and recorded by our team at the Aspen Institute. The Aspen Ideas Festival programming team is Kitty Boone, Killeen Brettman, Katie Cassetta, Libby Franklin, Brett Howley, Jamie Miller, and me. Our music is by Wonderly. I'm Trisha Johnson. Thanks for joining me.